this special video episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want on Dating Kinky's YouTube channel is presented by Dating Kinky. It's built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. Featuring personalities as their authentic selves, this is What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. It's an intimate conversation with people inside the kink and fetish worlds, as well as educators, sex-positive personalities, and other amazing people sharing their stories of what makes them who they are. And now, here is our own wonderful human with the questions. John, or as he is known around the kink and fetish community, hi there, Catsuit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit, joined by the person that I call the busiest woman in fetish, Rachel Adams. It is so <laughs> nice to have you here in person to be able to talk to you. We had you as a guest with the, uh, with the Ultra Girl panel last year mm -hmm. to start season two but I've always wanted to talk to you on your own. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It was always a funny interview because I did it in the parking lot at, a, at Travel America. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was only audio. I, don't, I guess it wasn't as obvious that I was in the parking lot. I did that truck stop, but that's okay. <laughs> I called you the busiest fetish model that I know. You put out so much content I'm seeing you all over the place, whether it's up in Michigan or traveling in the Midwest or being down in Florida. It's like, where in the world is Rachel Adams? <laughs> Just how much during a typical year do you find yourself in a studio? Um, I'm on tour, usually the equivalent of maybe it's spread out, but probably the equivalent of maybe two weeks out, two weeks a month. Mm -hmm. But during that time, I try and stack up as many books as book as I can during each day that I'm gone. Um, so I guess each day it, can, it varies a lot, obviously, depending like who I'm working with. So. But one of the things that really yeah. strikes me is the fact that you do so, I'll see you doing uh, uh, a booted, uh, something with boots one day, and then I'll see you working with Eric Kane another day and doing one of your many ultra girl things. You do so many things and you're so versatile. Where yeah. did you start that versatility? What was the first... What was the first professional scene you ever did? Do you remember that? In, in fetish? Um, mm -hmm. um, I did an accidental foot fetish shoot in the beginning. <laughs> I say accidental because I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. It was I was on Model Mayhem. And on Model Mayhem, they're not very fetish friendly sometimes. And someone did a casting for um, parts modeling which, you know, is commonly like hands with like watches or rings or something mm -hmm. or feet for like shoes. I'm like, oh, I can do that, you know. And I got there and it was 100% a foot fetish shoot. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can do this. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, that's probably just a couple of months before I started doing bondage. But it was honestly a challenge at the beginning because I was not very good at ad-libbing dialogue. Mm. And a lot of, a lot of um, genres require lots of ad-lib. Mm -hmm. Like bondage less so, depending on how early you end up with a gag in your mouth, you don't have to say anything. Um, <laughs> that was a little bit easier. But if it's like boots or gloves or POV of any kind, just lots of ad-lib dialogue. And in the beginning, I was terrified to try and come up with dialogue that would make sense or that would go along with what we're doing. And I was asked a lot of questions and tried to look up examples of what they might be looking for to find out the right adjectives or describing words or pacing or those kinds of things to try and get an idea. Um, it was hard in the beginning to try and figure out what to say. I'm like, I don't know if I have five minutes to talk about something. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was a challenge. Did you ever act in school or do anything where you had to do public speaking or thinking on your feet? Um, I was terrified in high school doing any kind of public speaking or trying to, trying to speak. And like, I'm trying to, so I'd like have paper like this and like <laughs> buried into it, trying to hide my face. And, um, I did some, pad, did some pageants in my, when I was um, 15 or 16 years old. And those were terrifying. But thankfully, the lights are so bright on you that the audience is black and you don't have to see people's faces. Mm -hmm. That wasn't as bad. Um, but I did some indie film work in college, which is, I was never a theater person, so memorizing long dialogue pieces is kind of a challenge sometimes for me as well. Mm -hmm. So I have to read it over and over and over and over again. But um, that was probably my first time being a character of any kind on screen was doing indie films. But that was probably, I started doing that was eight, when I was 18, I guess. Mm. How did they find you, or did you go on auditions? Um, I was part of this really old email chain system <laughs> in 2002, where they would send out like a, it was like the old chain mail, like chain email things, mm -hmm. where they would have a mailing list and send out just blanket email, and it had just all the castings for acting jobs in Ohio. And I was going to college at Kent State at the time, mm -hmm. and it was called NE Ohio Pal. <laughs> for Northeastern Ohio, they send out like castings and you could pick and it'd be like an email. You, you click on like a kind of a highlighted email address and mm -hmm. just message them out. And I messaged someone about an, about an independent film through the Any Ohio Pal network. And that's mm -hmm. how I found the jobs. And I would have to send them pictures and then go and do like a, a read once I messaged them off of that. But it was from that old email chain. I sent them pictures from, of my comp cards back when comp cards were a thing. Mm -hmm. Um and I had to go to the casting. Was it fun being somebody else? Um, yes and no. Like, it's really hard for me to be a character that's completely different from me. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for me to be, like, the characters I was in those films. Ironically, in the first film I was in, I was a college student that was kidnapped by her classmates. <laughs> so there's that. Um, but it's hard for me to be a character that's completely opposite personality-wise from myself. I find that really challenging. I know some people are really good at just being whatever the role is, but if it's completely opposite of me, then it's difficult for me to um, feel like I can plausibly put that character forward on screen. Mm -hmm. Some people are really good at it, but for me sometimes I feel like I'm given a role that's completely opposite of how I would talk and how I would 
behave that it's difficult. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. When your first part called for being kidnapped. It was a horror film. That's what I saw it as. You know, it wasn't fetish related at all. Mm -hmm. I had never, I had no experience in the genre at all. I wasn't, you know, so at the time I was, I had an agency representation to be, um, I was doing like um, fashion shows at like malls and bridal shows and stuff. Mm -hmm. and I did like brochures for medical equipment and I did like just regular like modeling, like character modeling and some makeup ads and stuff. I, I just saw it as like a horror film because in horror films people get kidnapped and things happen to them, you know, so I didn't see it as being anything else. I saw it as a horror film, and then looking back, I'm like, that's definitely a fetish movie. <laughs> so when's the first time you actually decided, okay, I'm going to try a fetish movie? Well, I was an art, I, I started off having an agent, right? Mm -hmm. and I, did the, I did agency work for a long time, but most of the agents I worked with were the kind of agents where they would like try and collect models almost. They had lots of people on their roster. They had lots of comp cards. So most of the work was for experience or exposure, which is mm -hmm. for free. And you can only do that for so many years before you're like, I need to try and do something. So like I was, I got on one model place in 2001 and I was on Model Mayhem in like 2003, I think. And just putting, just for fun casting those is trying to find work. And back then networking, if you weren't doing it on those websites was group shoots mm. where they'd have like a, like they'd have like a building, like a, like a, They'd have everyone meet like a pond or a lake or like an old like theater or building, some kind of venue that had backgrounds and mm -hmm. people would bring in meals and they'd spend $20 admission fee and you'd schedule to work with people every hour with somebody different to try and network face to face because mm -hmm. the only way to network was based on front of people and because social media was not a thing in 2001, 2002. Um, so I started doing the, um, the group shoot network. Um, I did those every weekend to try and get my face in front of as many people as possible to try and like find work. And I started, I went from like doing the more fashion-y things to more art and art nude. And there's heavy fetish and art crossover. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not something that's seen that way. It's seen as just being artistic. So you're doing like torn pantyhose or you have like electrical tape on your body or you're wearing like just a gag or you have pantyhose over your body and you're pushing through it or something. It's very, all those are fetish elements. And there was a producer that, uh, that would, to me, I saw him as being a very good black and white art photographer. He mm -hmm. took very pretty rope images, like rope on the body, and he'd hit with like a hard light and get, the, get pretty shadows and mm -hmm. stuff. So I really liked his pictures. And I met him at the group shoots, but I could not work with him at them because the art guys would hate the rope lines. It'd be a big deal because the rope lines would take much longer to fade and mm -hmm. mess up your vision. So. Like we were friends with those things. We didn't actually end up shooting together until like early 2008. Um, but I, the first time I shot with him was pretty artsy pictures with rope. And he said, well, you know, I do video. And I think you could do it. And I'm like, what, is that, what does that even mean? He's like, well, I mean, you would just, you would kind of fight with me while I'm doing the rope. But it essentially ended up in like a similar tie or whatever. It was very dissimilar. It was, not, it was not the same thing. <laughs> but, like, well, I could probably do that. I could probably figure it out. I had no idea about the industry or FetLife or Cliff for Sale or websites. or I had no idea about any of them at all. I just knew that he took really pretty, wrote pictures, and mm -hmm. I'd worked with him. He was a really nice person. And 
Okay, I can do. I can probably do a video. And it was 2008. It was the recession. Mm. So, like, I had gotten my master's degree in May of 2009, but I already knew that the reset that everything was kind of falling down in Dayton at the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I need I need to figure out something, some kind of other alternative work. I could probably do this. It's probably something I could do. I have no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> and it was really hard in the beginning, having never done it before. And it was really, it was, it was, a, it was really rough shoots to start with. He's, a, he's kind of a rough producer to start with. But um, I didn't know anything about anything at the time. So I just, I kind of learned through him how, like, like what some of the shoots were like. And then he introduced me to people and I kind of just slowly networked from there, kind of like word of mouth connecting mm-hmm. because I didn't have a fat life or know any other way to network people aside from like, here's a phone number, here's an email address and just kind of reference wise getting a network. So when you did that first one, it must've been going through your mind. What have I gotten myself into? Yeah. Yeah, it was rough. I had no idea. No, it's like, this is not what I thought it was going to be, but I can do this. I can do this because mm-hmm. he said the videos are this amount of time. So we're at this point in the video. I can do this. And it was kind of just like, because a lot of it is in your head. You know, you have to talk yourself through it and make yourself not panic. And there's a lot of like this mental gymnastics mm-hmm. kind of just dealing with like figuring out what, like what was going to happen and what we're going to do. And like I came from it a very different avenue than a lot of people. Cause I came in from just like vanilla modeling to mm-hmm. bondage work. A lot of people go from like lifestyling to doing video work where I came from the very outside mm-hmm. <laughs> having no idea. I'm just kind of jumping in. So was there any kinky DNA in you at all when you started this? No, I'd never done anything at all. At all. I was an art model that just met someone that did bondage photography that ended up getting me into videos. So at what, <laughs> at what point did you kind of go, this is different kind of shooting, but there's really something different to this. Meaning at what point did you discover it was kink as opposed to just another movie? Oh, I knew what it was when we started doing the videos because he told mm-hmm. me from the gate what that was. Like, I knew that independent film had hints of kink after we filmed it um, because it got picked up by a bondage forum website, mm-hmm. which were popular in 2003 when the video was released. Um, it came out on DVD and went to some indie theaters. We did like a little circuit of theaters. But I didn't really think anything of it when it came out, that it was anything but a horror movie. But it was reviewed by that bondage um, bulletin website. It was um, Bring Out the Gimp, Girls in Merciless Peril. It was this old bulletin board site where people would like just post comments about things, you mm-hmm. know, in different bulletin posts. And they were reviewing the movie. And they reached out to the guy I was seeing at the time. He was the villain in the movie. We got together during filming back in like 2002. Mm-hmm. And they reached out to him by email. And he's like, you need to see this, you know? So I saw the forum and we kind of just kind of scrolled through and then we went down a rabbit hole clicking on what they were reviewing. It's like, what is this stuff? You know, because it was all these bondage movies. Mm-hmm. And we had no idea. 
because in the film, like, I get knocked out and tied up and in a couple of different ways, but it was always like not severe things. So to me, I was just captured hostage. I didn't mm-hmm. associate it with anything else. But like that was when I really knew that there was an industry for it. But then when I started actually shooting it in 2008, that like it wasn't hidden to me what it was. It was like I knew he was selling it online. I didn't know where. I didn't. I, I didn't know anything about clips for sale or any of that. He told me to get a fat life. And I got one, but the site's really difficult to navigate if you don't know how to navigate it. So, like, mm-hmm. I had one. I didn't use it. But, like, I just kind of, like, I knew they were selling them online. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where or whatever. And that just means there's a market for it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I learned it as I went. But in the beginning, I didn't have any clue where they were selling it. <laughs> Was there ever any hesitation that... Well, maybe I sh- should I be doing this work, or was it? Hey, work is work. I'm happy with this. Um. Well, like I, when I was eight, like nineteen, I did an art nude shoot, and it was I never intended for it to be seen online. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where I was talked into it by the agency photographer for the agency I was I was working for at the time. Mm-hmm. He had said I was a broke college student. I needed to update my comp cards, mm-hmm. and he had told me that. Um, if I trade him time for time, where I did four hours of art nudes, he would do four hours of what I needed to update my my pictures for free. And I'm like, well, I don't have I don't have any money, but where will they be? And he said they're only for my hard copy portfolio. They can't go online because mm-hmm. I do weddings and things, so I can't put them anywhere. And I believed him, and within two weeks, my coworkers at McDonald's had eight by ten nudes of me they bought on eBay. Wow. So. That was already a thing back when I was like eight, like 19. I knew that things were going to be on the internet. They were going to be found somewhere. Um, but when I first started shooting it, I didn't actually have a stage name. I wasn't searchable at all for the first year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. I didn't intend to keep doing it. I figured I'd just do it for now until I got a regular job again because I got laid off during the recession. Mm-hmm. And I just ended up not ever finding a job in my field again. I found that over-educated, under-experienced category. Mm-hmm. And after like two years of shooting, of doing this, I'm just like, well, I mean, I could just keep doing this. And it was kind of like a part-time job in the beginning because I worked at a restaurant waiting tables on third shift for 10 years while I was doing this too. Wow. So I traveled for three or four days a week while working at the restaurant. Um. But, like, in the beginning, I didn't have a stage name. was kind of my safety. Like, I was not searchable. You had mm-hmm. to find me, like, on purpose. But if you were on a bondage website and you knew my face, you went to that bondage website on your own first. Mm-hmm. So you'd be implicating yourself by implicating me. Right. was kind of my, mm-hmm. my thought. You know, like, I did a... Um, I worked with a glamour photographer for a long time, an Ohio glamour photographer. And he happened upon my pictures on a website called Girls Gone Knocked Out, you know. And he tried to come at me and be degrading and be like, I didn't realize he stooped so low as a shooting fetish knockout content. And I mm-hmm. messaged him back, hey, I was unaware you're such an avid purchaser of fetish knockout content, you know. And then he was much nicer and followed in subsequent emails because, you know, if they find you in the niches like that, 
they have to be looking. Mm-hmm. So they can't shame you for producing the content that they themselves are looking for and purchasing. Was kind of my theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when was Rachel Adams born? I was on set. It was probably late 2009, I would assume. And that same photographer at the Art New Group Shoots, he told me, by the end of today, you need a stage name. I can't have you not be searchable anymore. I need a stage name to put on your, put on your work. Mm -hmm. So while we were shooting that day, I just came up with the name on the fly, on set. Were there any inspirations for it? When I was a kid, we used to walk to this place called Bagel Cafe, where you would give them a name and they'd write it on your order and they'd call it out real loud when your food was ready. <laughs> and all of my friends and I would give them wrong names. Mm -hmm. And I always gave them the name Rachel, which was a obviously wrong name. And I used it all the time for that. And I dated someone in high school whose last name was Adams. And they seemed to go together pretty okay. Mm -hmm. So I just made a name. He found me on Fat Life years later. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you like my name? That must have been surreal. I thought it was funny. It, was maybe, it wasn't that long ago either. Maybe five years ago? Six years ago? Did you have any idea when you were dating that... No. No, I was like 17. <laughs> no. Like, we, like, it was a very, very vanilla relationship. And then mm -hmm. later on, he found me on FetLife. It was kind of funny. So it kind of leads to the question, is Rachel Adams kinky? It depends on your definition. Because I would say I'm a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm into is pleasing people. So, if I, so it's more of the person. So if I was with somebody who is into feet, that I would be into feet for them. Mm -hmm. Because my kink is pleasing other people, regardless of what that happens to be. Mm -hmm. So if someone's really into rope, then I want to do rope for them. And I want to make them happy. And it kind of goes into my work also. Like every shoot that I do, I want to make sure that I'm doing enough to make people happy with what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I never want to disappoint anybody or make people upset. Um, so it depends on your definition. Like, do I have a particular individual kink? I wouldn't say there's one in particular. It's my kink becomes whatever the kink is of the person that I'm with. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So, like, if it was someone that I was that I had feelings for that we were doing something, then I would have like an emotional experience in whatever I was doing. Mm -hmm. But if I'm working with someone that's in a work environment then it's a work environment, it's not the same. If that makes sense. So it's mm -hmm. the person, not, not the experience. If that makes any sense. Did anything <laughs> ever evolve where something does do something for you? Um, just as, a, just as a, just in and of itself, not with the person that's doing it? Like wearing a gag makes you feel calm or, help, or helpless or in your head or having your feet tied makes you feel like somebody's giving you a hug, something that is not for someone else but makes you feel good about something. I have done very limited off-camera kink things. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't know. Um, because on camera, it's where are the cameras? Mm -hmm. What are we doing next? Where are we in the story? How long? How long? How like what's next? I'm remembering all the pieces. If we have like a custom thing with lots of pieces, I try and remind the the person that is working with me of pieces so we don't forget things. Mm -hmm. And mine's always focused on what we're doing. Um, so I, I don't know. I haven't done that many things off camera mm -hmm. to have it become something. Well, let's talk about the things yeah. you do on camera. As I said, I've seen you in so many different scenarios, most of them bondage, but I've seen more different gags on you. I've seen more different kinds of outfits on you. I have seen you play superheroines. I've seen you play people who have been kidnapped or distressed, and then I've seen you Eric Kane. Oh my gosh, bless you for that. <laughs> He was the nice art photographer that I met at the group shoot. Oh! <laughs> he takes very pretty pictures. Wow. He does. Very pretty black and white pictures. Yes. That's amazing. Because everybody out... An aside. Back when we first met it was under the ultra girl panel and i became friends with carissa dumond mm -hmm. and i saw her get eric caned i always use it as a verb and it was one where there were literally ropes all across her face and it was literally so tight that you could see everything bulging it was something that was almost say, yeah, like a sausage yes Exactly. That's what I would refer to it as like a, like it looks like a sausage because the rope makes it look like the meat at the mm -hmm. end, of like a deli. Yep. I like. Yeah. You have the bones around. Yeah. <laughs> and I texted her and I said, "Can we do a call because I have questions?" And the first question I had was, "How did you survive?" Now, for me, when they're like, I think starting off with something at that level makes you not really realize that it's harder than the other people. I always feel like it's on well, the microphone. I always <laughs> feel like it's um like starting there helped me to I guess realize the like makes it so you don't have so the phobies are different. Like some mm -hmm. people are afraid of having things with their face or um people that like like um it makes you have more of an awareness of your own threshold for things. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't say I'm an enjoyer of pain, but I have a high threshold for enduring mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's kind of a head game with yourself. Because if you're doing something really severe, then I try to focus on the last thing that was added most recent thing done because in the beginning it might be like my elbows are really sore mm -hmm. and things might be in the wrong place and my all my arms are kind of achy and the gag gets put in the gag's really really big so it's tight and makes my face hurt and it makes my jaw ache and so I start watering because my jaw aches so bad from the gag but then clamps are added so I'm focusing on the clamps and I forget about the gag and I forget about the elbows all completely and I'm just focused on the clamps and then I guard back with something and then 
something gets pulled gets pulled in the hair. The focus on just the hair tie. So I try and like mentally make myself focus on the most recent thing added, which makes it seem like you have less going on. Wow. Because your brain's only focused on the most recent thing that happened. It's painful. Kind of like how they say that if you break your foot or something, you need to get you need to get somewhere that you bite like your hand or you bite your thumb or something mm -hmm. and you distract your brain with something else that's painful. I think it's the same kind of theory that I just make my brain focus on the most recent thing mm -hmm. instead of the other things. So when you go through this process, has there ever been a time when the floodgate accidentally opens and you start going backwards and going, oh, damn, all this stuff is happening right now? Um, and does often, it panic you? Oftentimes, when it's really severe, the thing that I have the biggest problem with is breathing. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm crying, then my nose stuffs up. Mm -hmm. Right? So when your nose stuffs up, you're trying to breathe around a gag while snot is running onto your mouth. So breathing can cancel out anything else. If you can't breathe, then that's, the, that's going to take your focus away from everything mm -hmm. else. So I've had a couple of moments where things are really severe. If my breathing gets messed up, where I have to like flag. So there's like, mm -hmm. no, like, I need a timeline for this. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think there's been a time where like my brain backpedals from the breathing because the breathing is always just like mm -hmm. in the forefront of the brain because it makes you panic the most when you can't breathe. Is there a certain, because as I said, I've seen all sorts of different gags on you. Is there a certain gag that you enjoy and a certain gag that you dread? I hate metal ring gags. Because to make them stand vertically without tipping backwards, mm -hmm. you have to wedge them in your teeth. And I have crowns and caps and things. Mm. And I had a big metal ring wedged in my teeth and, and you know, being moved, maneuvered around for a scene. It's not that uncommon to accidentally knock into, like, knock into something with your face. Mm -hmm. And so I was working with a producer who, not, not his fault, I didn't even tell him. When he was, like, moving me around, my, the time my face was, was hit into something. I forget mm -hmm. what it even was at this point. And I cracked the back of my tooth because I have this piece of metal just wedge really hard in between my teeth. So you mm -hmm. have to wedge it in there or else it's going to flip backwards. Mm -hmm. and like the double rings don't flip, but that single ring always wants to do this. Yeah. Always. And never wants to stand upright. So if you wedge in your teeth, so the metal rings, if they're small enough to be comfortable, you have to hold them in place by yourself. Mm -hmm. Right? If they're big enough that you're not holding it in place yourself, you're just, I mean, I just always am focused to make sure I don't break my teeth. Mm -hmm. So I do not like metal ring gags at all. <laughs> Silicone ones aren't as bad. They bend a little bit. You can bite onto them a little bit. But mm -hmm. the metal ones, I do not like. Um, I like soft ball gags. Like, doesn't be smushy, smushy, but mm -hmm. just the ones that you can get in your mouth. Don't hurt your teeth. Mm -hmm. But I don't like them if they're put on so tightly that it hurts all the muscles in your face. Mm -hmm. 
because your mouth's all the way open to the bone there and you're pulling all the muscles backwards with that strap mm -hmm. so they make it like a brutal cleave behind your head. I don't like that. <laughs> um, like cleaves are always tricky with that because they can be really mean depending how they're done. Mm -hmm. um, with, with tape, it really depends on the tape. Some of them are really mean on the skin or gummy and the gum comes off in your hair and it feels mm. like you have like maple syrup in your hair or like blue because depending on kind of adhesive mm -hmm. when it gets warm or like if you peel it off and you see the sticky coming off on the other side mm -hmm. and that gets all in the hair and it's hard to get all that gumminess out of the hair for the next scene so it'll be on the being out stuff camera taking a comb and <laughs> trying to get the, the adhesive out of my hair with opening my hair out and I'm trying to mess up the top layer to cover up all the gumminess underneath it <laughs> or pull back a ponytail to try and bury all the gumminess in the ponytail mm -hmm. so you can't see the fact that it's all covered in Tape adhesive. <laughs> and my hair is kind of thin. So if I don't unwrap it myself, then I'm always worried that the hair gets trapped in the folds of the tape and it's mm -hmm. going to be ripped off. Has there ever been a bondage that you've gotten into that you really wondered if you were going to be able to get through it? Mm-hmm. Describe that scenario for me. There have been a couple where I had to stop the scene. Um, I did one where, um, like, posture collars are often a challenge for me. Mm -hmm. And because I'm bony, they always sit on my collarbone. They yeah. never sit on my shoulders. They always sit on my collarbone or right here at the base of the collarbone. So it's just pushing on my chin bone and my collarbone is where posture collars sit. Mm -hmm. They're never on my neck, they're on my shoulders, it's po you know, depending how they're put on, if it's a big ball gag, then the ball gag puts weight <laughs> on, on the collarbone yeah. again. And then if my arms are raised at all, that puts more pressure on the collarbone on the posture collar, you know. Because if you raise the arms, then the, then the collarbones go up with it. And like when the, the first one that came to, came to mind, we ended up having to stop the scene. Um, I was shooting in like a, an outdoor kind of metal shed. It was raining, so it was difficult to convey the issue verbally. Mm -hmm. And I had a big posture collar on. And I was in an elbow tie that he was kind of like lifting up behind me. He was going to do like a, a chest and elbow suspension. And I had a big posture collar on. So he did a lot of tape. I was having issues with the tape even because as he was jerking me around, it was pulling on. The posture collar was really tall, so it was mm. pushing really hard on the collarbones. Then he kept lifting up the, the chest arms with the elbows, so my shoulders kept doing this and pushing it even more up, you know, making me not have enough of a gap for the posture collar. And I knew there was no way you could lift me by that because it would be the posture collar just digging so heavily into my collarbones. And I don't think people that haven't been in that position wouldn't necessarily consider the issue of the posture collar mm -hmm. digging into the shoulders if the arms are raised. And it's just how the body works, I guess, that once like he, he realized he couldn't hear me officially and he, he just cut the upline. He's like, we're done with the scene. I don't know. I can't tell what's wrong. And he ended the tape. And I'm just like, I was just trying to tell you to take off the posture collar <laughs> <laughs> because I, I can't do it. And he's like, 
I had attended hip toss for color off a while ago, and I just didn't think about it. That's my bad. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a thing. Now, you're talking about tape so much. Mummification scenes. Mummifications, um, they're, it's, it's, not, it's usually not tape on skin. Like one time back in like 2009, um, me and the producer learned a valuable lesson that you don't do it on skin. Because mm. that was bad. My skin was the wrong texture for like a while. Mm-hmm. And the first couple of layers came off. Like, I have a tape mark right here, actually, where the skin's the wrong texture. Wow. Um, I'm right there, actually, on my leg. Um, but the biggest issue I have with um, like a modification is I try and push out with my knees as hard as I can when they're wrapping the knees. Otherwise, it pushes bone on bone so mm-hmm. hard. You end up having to like, offset your knees and offset your ankles so you're not bone on bone. But then it's hard to stand sometimes because mm-hmm. you're all like, messed up in how you're standing. Or if they do really tight here and here above and below, and it's really tight on both, then it's hard to... You know, take mm-hmm. a breath. So I try and like breathe in as like hard as I can, and try and like puff my chest as much as possible, and try and make there be room. Like things often fall asleep in a mummy, but my biggest concern with those is if I don't have enough room to breathe, or it's too tight on the chest. I mm-hmm. guess breathing's always <laughs> is always where I start to like. Maybe I'll do that, but I've done, but I've done plenty of those where. The issue I ended up having was that it was too tight on the chest. Is there anything that's fun? I think that I think that there are that all most of the scenes I do are fun, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun to do the scene, and um, I always like to see like to see the pictures afterwards because I almost never see the videos. But I always like to see pictures afterward and see what we did, and you know, I, I think it, the whole process is fun. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's. Not uncommon, controversial take. I think it's not uncommon for things to fall asleep when you're shooting. Like, mm. Not like the nerve damage fall asleep or, you know what I mean? It's just like tinglies. I think that's common for it to happen at some point before the end of the video is over. And that doesn't really worry me. So I can tell, kind of, doing it for so long, I can tell, like, this is going to come right back when the rope comes off. But I think the process is fun. I like to see what we accomplish. I like Especially if it's like something really severe, I want to see. I want to see a picture of what we did. Because mm-hmm. when you're in it, you have no idea how it looks. You know. So I have a lot of fun with the process and the people that I've gotten to work with and meet has been really cool. And I think it's really fun when I get the chance to do a genre that I'm not experienced with because mm-hmm. um, I inadvertently pigeonholed myself into bondage for a long time because people didn't really see me as anything else. So it's difficult to get the first one, like to get people to be willing to let me do wrestling or let me mm-hmm. do um, like POV videos or glove videos or boot videos or something. It was hard just for them to see me in that role because usually I'm gagged. Mm-hmm. So I don't get a chance to talk or, you know, try to do those things. So it's been great the last couple of years. People have been more willing to give me a, a shot. Like it's still not uncommon for if I message somebody, then a message me back. Um, we don't do bondage. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I went through your store, <laughs> but I do do what you shoot too. I just don't have as much of it on my Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's the hardest thing, honestly, is getting people to trust that it won't be a waste of their time for them to give someone a shot to shoot something that they are not known for. You know. 
this job has taken you all over the world. To a degree. <laughs> I've been to a couple con con continents to talk today, but not all of them, just two. Is it different? Because I know you went to Europe. Mm -hmm. Is it different in Europe than it is here? Or is it just the same thing with a different set of communication skills? Um, it, it depends. Like, it's, it's very similar. It's, a lot, it's um, very similar in how, I set, how we set the shoots and when we discuss what we're going to do. And um, thankfully, I've shot mostly with people where we can communicate. I did get earbuds that translate. Um, it's one way, though. It's oh, wow. For me. They don't work like I would have hoped that they would work, though, because they translate literally. But people talk in sayings so often or use um, slang that doesn't translate properly. And like I tried to use it in Germany when I was there in June, and I was looking at the translator, and it just it didn't make any sense at all. And this, this, this uh, model I was working with who's German, she's like, can I, can I see it? I turned it. I'm like, I think it's wrong. She's like, oh, no, that's actually 100% what they said. It just doesn't make sense in English. <laughs> cool, you know. But a lot of the same setup. It's a little more of a challenge to get around because I'm too scared to drive in a country where I, don't, I can't read the signs mm -hmm. or know the traffic laws. And I'm terrified to drive in England. Oh, yes, like I've they, done that. They do speak English. But driving on the other side of the car, on the other side of the road, to me is um, terrifying. So I can't book the same volume of work because I have to account for trains. And trains take a long time sometimes. So it ends up being like only shooting with one person a day for longer periods of time rather than in the U.S. where you can just drive to the next one. It's not as easy. I'm curious because of who you are. Are you somewhat of a celebrity over in Europe? Like, we're getting to work with Rachel Adams. How cool is this? Um, I haven't experienced that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Like, the people that I've worked with have always, have always been very nice to me. But mm -hmm. they, were, they weren't really, like, um, necessarily like that. I had someone in England who was excited by my accent, and that amused me a lot because I feel like the Ohio accent is so... Plain, mm. you know, because growing up here, it's very, it's very much a, to me, it's a very flat accent. It's very boring where I like Southern accents and New York accents. I think they're fun because they're different, you know, mm -hmm. someone in England be like, I really like your accent. I'm like, really? <laughs> this? <laughs> um, but no, like I haven't really had that experience. Um, I've discovered though, which I thought was kind of funny. I don't have prominent enough features for pe people to necessarily approach me not knowing it's me. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm not on a shoot, people don't necessarily walk up to me to talk to me. Mm -hmm. Even like at events sometimes, it's funny for me. Because I think I blend so well in with, like some people have very like pronounced features. Mm-hmm. And I blend so well with regular people at the yeah. event that people don't necessarily approach me if, so, they, if they don't know it's me to begin with. You are kind <laughs> of the epitome of Girl Next Door. And I think that may very well be 
part of what your success is because you're relatable. Yeah, I, I blend very easy. They look like everybody else that you would encounter, I think. Um, it's like one time someone called my name, like, called, like at a bus station in Germany. And it threw me off, and I realized it was another model working at downtown. <laughs> oh, never mind. It's someone I actually know who just happens to be at this bus station in Germany. Mm -hmm. That's less interesting than if it was like a random person. We're getting ready for FetishCon. Yes. Which is it's the first time I ever felt like, okay, I'm around all my people now. This is great. Yeah, FetishCon's always a lot of fun. What was it like for you working? walking into FetishCon for the first time? Oh, I was terrified. Because I've been doing bondage work for a long time at that point. But I wasn't online. Like, mm. I had a Fet life. But all my contacts I had made through, like, Model Mayhem. Mm -hmm. Or I just was even their email address. So to me, I'm like, I'm going to an event where nobody's going to have any clue who I am. I'm not going to know anybody. There are like 30 people that I've worked with like consistently over that time. So I was terrified of going there because I'm an awkward wallflower in social events where I don't know people. Mm. If, you know, if I walk into this place, I'm not going to know a single person, and it's going to be really awkward. Um, I was really, 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 really fortunate that that pocket of like 30 people that I knew had been in the industry for like forever. Mm -hmm. Because the people that I started shooting with were pretty established to begin with because the first person I worked with there was Eric Kane. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to his very best friend, JJ Plush, <laughs> who then, because all three of us went to the same art group shoot in Toledo, Ohio, because she met him there too. Wow. All three of us went there in Toledo. So um, I met them in the beginning and I would ask her for references for places. Yeah, I made like a little network in Michigan because that was where mm -hmm. they were both based out of. And so I have made a little network there. But then when I traveled places, I would ask her who she recommended. And she would give me this list of people who had been very established and around for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Like Harmony Concepts days, long time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she just gave me a list and I just cold messaged people. Having no idea who anybody was. I had no idea they'd been around for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Just... So this is a contact. I was sold a contact for work. So I'll just cold contact them like, hi, this is my name. This is who I've worked with. I would love to work together. And I just got really lucky and they all said yes. Mm -hmm. So I worked with a lot of really established people in the Chicago area and LA area and in Florida and stuff. And I had no idea that, you know, because I didn't know anybody from anybody because I came mm -hmm. from the outside. And so when I went to FetishCon, when I first walked, I was terrified because I walked in by myself. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, and the first person I ran into was Jim Hunter. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, you said you wanted to meet people, right? I said, I do. He tied me in like a really high reverse prayer <laughs> and then handed me off to Jean Found. He's like, he's like, keep an eye on her. He's like, oh, hey, Rachel. I guess, I guess we're hanging out together now. And Jim was like, people will approach you now. You don't have to network with people. Wow. Okay. So I just kind of walked around the event. With jeans bound for a while, just try, just like trying to meet people awkwardly because I was mm -hmm. the socially awkward chess club kid in high school that played role playing games. So I wasn't social. Mm -hmm. I didn't 
you know, I, I didn't have anybody to approach me like, hi, I should know this name. What, what's your name or what do you do? Mm -hmm. Whatever. I, nope. Like, <laughs> even a couple of years ago, I was online and I had models behind me that I knew from the internet. And I didn't introduce myself. Because in my head, I'm like, there's no way they don't they know who I am. I'm some random girl, but she's fetish from Ohio. So I never approached them. Mm. This is like 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, they don't know who I am. I'm, I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm just going to keep myself and stay online. <laughs> in my head, nobody knows who I am all the time. And they'll say, approach me. And as it turned around to where now so many people know you that you're like, whoa. I think it's really cool to be able to be in a room and know lots of people in the room. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's in Ohio, I live a very non-social life. Like, I don't have a lot of friends in my area because I live in a relatively conservative small town in southern Ohio. It's mm -hmm. rather conservative and kind of close-minded. And so I don't go out very much and make friends. Because as an adult, you make friends at work, mm -hmm. right? I don't work in Ohio very often, so I don't really have that many friends. So <laughs> I'm by myself all the time in Ohio, just doing things with family. Mm -hmm. And so it's so I can basically go days without talking to people outside of my home. So it's really cool to go to a venue where I know lots and lots of people, mm -hmm. being a very socially awkward person. You know what I mean? Because being an awkward, nerdy person took a long time to get to a point where I knew lots of people. That mm -hmm. <laughs> I always, I always saw it as when I meet people in bondage. That con to me is like the largest gathering of socially awkward people. <laughs> I love all in it. one place, able to be awkward with each other. It's like going <laughs> to a comic con, but for bondage, mm -hmm. because we're all kind of awkward people in our own way that all kind of keep to ourselves because we do things that we don't talk about to regular people. So we feel like we have to kind of keep it to ourselves a lot of the time. But then going to a venue with other people that are also awkward, mm -hmm. they also do the same thing. You don't feel awkward anymore because all of you have this shared like experience that you can't, that you can talk to each other about mm -hmm. and no one thinks you're weird, right? <laughs> so you can be your strange, weird, awkward self with all of your other strange, <laughs> awkward friends. You know, because in a lot of people that do this business are awkward people in mm -hmm. their own life, I think. And you can join us at the <laughs> world's largest <laughs> gathering of awkward people, August 10th through 13th in oh. St. Petersburg, Florida. Join us, won't you? I don't We're... mean that in any kind of bad way. <laughs> We're going to take a break. And when we come back on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, we're going to talk about how Rachel and I got to work together and how strange that was for me because I was just a puff of smoke when we come back. <laughs> we invite you to connect with us on social media so you can follow all the great news about the show. You can find us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1, on Instagram at WhatWomenWantPodcast, and on FetLife at WWWPodcast. And if you want to follow the host, that's easy, as on Twitter, Instagram, and FetLife, he is Hi There Catsuit. And now back to what women and other wonderful humans want, presented by Dating Kinky. And welcome back to the program. I am John, joined by Rachel Adams, who 
is one of the many people who play the character of Ultra Girl in after interviewing you all, not, which is just four of, what is it, 40 or something now, people? I don't even know. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I was asked to play a villain, the Shadow Demon. And I basically was a, a big six foot four, 250 pound human in a black Zentai suit. But I ended up being a puff of smoke, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Talk about what one of those shoots is like. The first one we did was the one that I, I call the the Flash Gordon uh, retrospective with the the hands that came out. That one I was really nervous on because most of the hmm. well most of the ones that I'm doing are like I am Ultra Girl and they're a villain and we're doing whatever we're doing and we make sure everything's in frame and well lit and we're going with the story whatever. That one was a challenge because I was sent a script to figure out how to shoot it as the director for green screen content. Mm. Having never in my life shot content for green screen with no real direction. This is like, here's the script. This is what we, what the shots we need for the green screen. But it's, if you're on camera tied up, you don't have control of the camera. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a little stressful when you have a custom, like any custom, really, that you're on camera and can't see what you're going to get until you're done. But that one I was stressed out about because I was trying to make sure we got all the pieces, fit them all together for the green screen content. Mm -hmm. So that one was a stressful experience, trying to make sure we got all the right angles and we got all the different special spec shots and so they could be all melt, all put it together because I had no experience with that at all. So while there are challenge. While there are all these people who play Ultra Girl, and it's amazing that S.H. Binder has brought together this multiverse of so many different. You are one of those people that's been consistent from the start all the way there, you and Constance. Have you had fun making this character your own? It has been fun. Um, the Constance was first. Mm -hmm. I think I was second after Constance. Um, but it's been a lot of fun being able to go on all the different, like, with all the different villains and all the different characters, because I always really enjoy making the story with the producer who comes up with their villain character. I think mm -hmm. that's a lot of fun, because they're all very different, and they all have different, like, schemes and abilities, and in the beginning, it was always kind of like, if you have a producer that has, like, a villain idea or whatever, mm -hmm. you can come up with your own character, and we'll, we'll make a video, so... I think a lot of the crews had a lot of fun too, coming up with their own villain character and costume and character name and whatever. And it was really a lot of fun being able to come up with all these different scenarios, kind of like what would be a comic book series where mm -hmm. I was getting in trouble. I've got to win once. I have one video in existence where I have a foot on their chest talking to the police as Ultra Girl. <laughs> but then there's other times when you've totally transformed. I've been. Three characters in the multiverse. Mm -hmm. So, because you are one of the few people who have worn different outfits, do you like the classic outfit? Do you like the cat suit outfit? What's your favorite? Um, I have the classic one. Like I have the cat suit and I have the classic one, and then I have the evil one. Mm -hmm. I have three. I've I've been Uber Girl only a handful of times, but. Mm -hmm. When you put it on for the first time, 
did you go, okay, this is just a character, or was it, oh, this is interesting? Honestly, the first time I put the black one on, in my head, I'm like, this doesn't go with the red. <laughs> the blue goes there with the red. So so used to it being blue, you know? Mm -hmm. So in my head, I'm like, this is, doesn't look right, because it's not the right color, you know? But um, it was kind of fun, because that meant that I was going to be working with another Ultra Girl, because I wouldn't be by myself mm -hmm. as Uber Girl. So, I mean, that was kind of fun. The first time I got to wear the costume, I was working with a model who predominantly does femdom work. So that made it more fun because she was the good one. I was the bad one. Oh. Where every time that we worked together, I was the victim. Except for that one. <laughs> like, yay, I get, to, I get to not be the victim today. <laughs> so how did the femdom take being the victim? It was funny. Because she shoots both. It's just predominantly she's usually the bad, the bad guy in all my videos. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? But it was funny. She wanted to be the bad girl, but I got to be that one that time. <laughs> when you have a day of shooting, mm -hmm. like the day that you and I had our shoots with Constance and, and Andy, there is no wasted time, it seems. Every minute is go, go, go. And I was worn out just watching you all do all your different things. How do you Pace yourself to get through that. Um, well, I try and just focus on everything we're doing. It's kind of like if you've ever worked a job where you're on your feet for 10 or 12 hours, where you don't feel it until you sit down. Yeah. You know, so I'm always trying to just like keep, keep the same momentum and keep everything going because like I worked a third shift job where I, was wait, I waited tables and I cooked and I would work like 16-hour doubles sometimes where I go mm. at like 10 p.m. the night before and then go up at 4 p.m. the following day and then do it again. Wow. And those were kind of those were kind of rough days, but I did that for a long time. And I guess, like I worked through college too. I had two full-time jobs in college while getting mm -hmm. my degree, so I was always working a lot, you know. And so I'm always constantly moving, with, then you, know, you don't really feel it as much. Let's so sit down, and then it hits you like a wave of tired. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you just keep moving, that's not as bad. And I think the hardest part about about touring, honestly, for me, the most tiring part is not the shooting. It's the eight, ten, twelve hours of driving to get there. Mm -hmm. um, because depending where I'm going, I'll have to get in the car and drive. You know, however hard it is to get there, and. Usually, when I arrive, I have to shoot immediately because I don't. I don't often leave the day before to get down there and give myself an extra day because wow. I try and not be away from home for super long because of home obligations. Mm -hmm. So I end up driving down there and then shooting immediately when I get down there and then getting in the car and driving and then shooting. And depending on how far apart things are, then I will drive overnight to get to the next thing. And I don't like being stuck in traffic and dealing with idiot drivers. I'd rather <laughs> be me in the semi trucks driving overnight. Mm -hmm. So probably just like the the driving is the most exhausting part because it's just lots and lots of hours of driving. Do you have any endurance tips like special music you listen to? A special podcast? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I predominantly listen to kind of gory true crime podcasts. Ooh. I have an obsession with true crime. And those are really good podcasts too. Like when I was a kid, my mom would record them on VHS tape. 
So we had them at home and she'd mail them off to me at college. She'd record them on a VHS tape and then snail mail, mail it to me away at college. So she'd watch a really good documentary on a serial killer or something. Mm -hmm. She'd mail it to me on VHS because I'm old. Um, <laughs> and I put it in my Quasar VCR mm -hmm. TV to watch it in my living room. This reminded me of you and I'm like, it's Ed Gein. That's kind of messed up, but yeah. I appreciate it anyway. <laughs> When you get off the road, you come home, you've obviously had marathon bondage sessions. Mm -hmm. Do you just turn off when you get home? Or are there other things you just have to take care of and it continues the marathon? I have to take care of things at home when I get home because I have a lot of home obligations. Mm-hmm that don't necessarily get taken care of like they should when I'm not there. Um, so when I get home, I, it's usually like a couple of hours of me playing catch up at my own house. Because like my brother takes care of my house and the pets and everything when I'm gone, but certain things get neglected. Mm -hmm. And I have to kind of put it back together again when I get home. But then also, I'm on the road for a week. I'm driving for 10, 12 hours sometimes a day and then working for the rest of them. I'm now a week behind on all platforms on messaging, mm -hmm. on every email platform, on texting. So I can't do any of that when I'm driving. And I don't want to be in my email or on my phone while I'm on shoot. Like I'll check to see if I get anything from home, but I'm not going to be planning a shoot while I'm at a shoot. I don't want to be rude like that, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like a week of me not being in my inbox sometimes. And so I'm trying to play catch up on that. Mm hmm. So it's, it's kind of a constant thing. What do you do for you? Um, not much. Um, like, I don't really have hobbies, per mm -hmm. se. Like, I like to travel and see things, I guess, but... Um, like when I started, when I was in high school, I worked a lot in high school. So I didn't really go out and do anything because mm -hmm. I was working. And then I started going to college and I worked two full-time jobs going to college so I wouldn't have debt. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really go out and do anything in college. And then after college, I had a family that I had to take care of. And then my hobbies became their hobbies because it makes life easier that way. Mm -hmm. Not fight with people all the time that don't want to do something with something you want to do. Mm -hmm. And then over time, when you focus on work, because if, if you've heard the joke, you don't want to work a nine to five anymore. So you work, you work for yourself, and you're working twenty four seven. That's kind of how I feel sometimes. Because if I take a couple hours to myself, I'm just not working or not emailing or not messaging or whatever, then I'm behind. Mm -hmm. So I've not really given myself an opportunity really to go and find a hobby. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like I read sometimes mm -hmm. at home. <laughs> I have an annoying cat that sleeps in my chest when I try and do anything. It makes it hard to <laughs> read. Um, what does happy look like for you? I am happy when I feel like I'm doing good at what I'm trying to be. 
like I really hate the thought of disappointing people or failing somebody or whatever. And it's stressful for me with like last year I was offline a lot because of a lot of personal things going on. Mm -hmm. And I don't put it online because my online persona does not have anything to do with my mm -hmm. home life. So I don't put it on the internet. And some people took it very personally that I was not online or as responsive that they felt that I should have been and felt very slighted. And it was kind of a rough year because a lot of the messages I was getting, because I'd be offline for a month or two trying to catch up on things. And people would get really angry. And a lot of the messages mm. turned to being really hateful messages because they felt like I, I was deliberately ignoring them or not responsive enough. That was kind of hard because like, I have a lot going on that has nothing to do with work. I'm not going to burden other people with my home things. But I don't want them to take it personally that I'm behind because it's not, mm -hmm. you know. But I really like to feel like I'm doing a good job at what I'm trying to do and that I make others happy. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, I'm about making, like, I'm, I like making other people happy, you know, and that... It doesn't necessarily have to be like a, an intimate or a relationship or sexual thing. I just, I get happiness from making other people happy mm -hmm. in general. So if I know people are happy with me, mm -hmm. that makes me happy, if that makes sense. I was talking to Liz River about this. Is that when we live a life of services, we do or a life of wanting to make other people happy, sometimes we forget to be kind to ourselves. Yeah. I realized years ago I don't have a favorite food or a favorite restaurant or a favorite movie or a favorite place to go. Because to have a favorite, you have to do a lot of things to get a favorite, you know? Mm -hmm. And... When you hit a point where you're just really busy, like when I was in high school, you're living at home. You don't have any decisions you can make. And then in college, I was working constantly because I, I graduated with my, with my bachelor's with no debt, which is an undertaking. That's amazing. Um, I had debt from my, from my master's, but I paid that off in 2016. So I paid off my student debt doing bondage. Wow. Um, not that I'm using my master's degree. But kind of, I guess, it's business-related. Mm -hmm. But if you're constantly just busy mm -hmm. doing things, then things like favorite foods become less of a priority. Mm. It's just like, what's available? I worked in food service for a long time. <laughs> so oftentimes it was exploded mozzarella sticks that were... You can't serve, but it's their dead food. They're sitting mm -hmm. in a heat lamp. I'm like, that's what I'm going to have tonight. I'm going to have these exploded mozzarella sticks. Or, like, what does everybody else want? Mm -hmm. I'll have what everybody else wants because I don't want to cook twice, you know? Mm -hmm. So I get that. It's a thing. Because when you just put yourself out there all the time doing other things and you want people to be happy, mm -hmm. and if somebody has a very specific favorite thing, then you want to be included in doing their favorite thing. Doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. That'll be my favorite. I'll enjoy seeing them enjoying themselves. Yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. 
What's on Rachel Adams' bucket list, or is there a who on Rachel Adams' bucket list? Like for work? Yeah. Um, I am very sad that I never got to work with House of Gord, if I didn't get the industry early enough. Mm. And Jay, Jay, um, yeah, Jay Edwards retired mm -hmm. before I started. I met him, but I've never, never got to work with him. He retired before I got into it. Um, there's a handful of producers I really like their work, but I don't, I don't fit the type of models they work with. So, I don't know. There were a couple that I really, that I was like, I really want to work with them, but then going to the body of work, it's like, I don't fit what they shoot, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, there are a lot of places I've not gone to that I'd like to go to again and actually see things. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to go back to Germany and see Germany. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place. Or go to England and see England. Mm-hmm. Instead of being there for a week and a half, only seeing train stations and hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. I've been to Germany like six times and not actually ever seen Germany. Wow. Did you at least get a good liter of beer somewhere? I don't drink. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Neither do I, which is the funny part of that. Um, I didn't drink alcohol until I was like 23. Mm -hmm. And when you wait that long, if it tastes bad, you just don't drink it anymore, right? That's exactly right. So any acquired taste I never acquired, mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't like that. I'm good. So that kind of carries over like coffee. like. I didn't like the drink of coffee, flavor of coffee, so I never, I never drank it. The coffee, like I've had some coffee over the years. I managed Dunkin' Donuts when I was in college. I had mm -hmm. to drink coffee, but I don't. I'm not a coffee drinker because it doesn't doesn't taste good the first time you drink it, right? Mm -hmm. it's bitter. So I'm like, I'm good. That's okay. I don't like it. I don't drink coffee either. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like it. It's fine. Rachel um, Adams and Katsuit have two things in common, <laughs> big time. The acquired taste, I don't bother acquiring. That's yeah. you keep eating or drinking something you don't like until you can like it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't do that. I don't put the effort in. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. It is always so much fun, and I can't wait to have more fun down at FetishCon coming up very, very soon. I always have a lot of fun at those. It's really awesome to see everybody. <laughs> and we're putting together an Ultra Girl picture. so. It, if you've got your Ultra Girl costume and you're coming to FetishCon, come on down. We will get it all coordinated because I know that I want to take that picture and see all these amazing people that have played the character. So we'll see you then. For Rachel Adams, I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What women and other wonderful humans want connects with you. Join us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1, on Instagram at WhatWomenWantPodcast, for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast, and now select shows are available in video format at youtube.com slash datingkinky. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla, and it's free.